Tea's piping hot tea is brewed and ready to be shared over a table of contemporary conversations with you. Welcome to the analysis table where we conversate, interrogate, laugh and weep as we stand in the commoners gallery feasting on matters of public interest. If your friends laugh a little because you love to unpack and you're always addressing, this is the show for you. When the teapot stops whistling, I hope the food for thought is filling. Hello everyone and welcome to the Tea with Tea show. Today I have a guest with me in studio that I'm very, very excited to have in studio actually. Hello Luvo, how are you doing today? Hi everybody, um, hi Tendega. I am well. It is such an honor to be able to be on here with you today. Um, I know before we started recording I was telling you that I'm a bit nervous but um, I think it's going to be a good one because that's normally how I feel every time before I have to go on air. <laughs> yeah, that's normally how you feel every time and you're a champion because I've seen you speak <laughs> a couple of times. So, you know what? It's all good and well. Thank you so much. So, Luvo, you know, before we started this episode, I sent you a description of what we'd be chatting about. And for everyone listening, today's podcast episode is titled Quarter to a Dream, Consciousness and Ceilings. And Asha. we'll just be chopping it up. And, you know, I have my opening liner say, or like my open liner is, you are black, creative, genius, queer, and engaged. Little Ooh. Abatembo, the light and hope of the Abatembo clan. What does identity mean to you? Oh, oh, wow, that was actually such a beautiful intro. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, identity, what does identity mean to me? I think that's not an easy one to answer, just because I think of how much identity encompasses, you know? But moreover, I think a lot of the times we do our best to try and be as self-reflective and introspective as we can, but regardless of how old you are or where you are in your life, I think you always find yourself in a position where you're learning new things about yourselves or finding yourself in a new place. But um, mm. to try my best to directly answer the question, I would say identity is the embodiment of the self in whatever way it is able to manifest. And we let it manifest. I love that. I think it captures... The idea of, you know, when you say we allow it to manifest is that it's a process and one can say it's even like a growth charter moving from one place to the next. So I want to start way, way back, you know, because I think this episode is going to be a journey and I want to start with, you know, having grown up in the Eastern Cape, what defined your environment at the time and how did this environment shape how a young Louvre perceived the world? And subs- subsequently, South Africa, I'd say. Um, cool. So, like you said, I come from the Eastern Cape. But I think more than that, I come from a very conservative town in the Eastern Cape. Um, I come from Ekomani or Queenstown, as it was formerly known. And the small town culture there is very real. It exists from the way that these schools exist and how the people and I guess the com- or rather the community interacts with them it exists in the club and perhaps tavern culture it exists in the 
everyday culture of how everybody knows everybody and everybody's somehow acquainted with each other. So I think that on itself is something that gave me a very broad idea of what family is. Um, I think that coupled with the fact of how I grew up, so I didn't grow up in a conventional home where it was me and my mom and my dad and my siblings. Um, my experience is one of where I grew up with my grandparents and in my grandparents' home, there wasn't just me, but there had been older cousins, younger cousins, aunts, uncles. Um, all these people have been like raised in my family, but the way that these relationships manifested in that space was so intriguing to me because there's no differentiation of a cousin to a sibling to my family. So everyone is one, just family, but two, everybody's your sibling. And I think how that impacted me is it made me, one, recognize that family units or that kind of structure, one, does not have to be conventional. But I think beyond that, it also showed me that beauty in community and family can exist in so many different ways. Um, and that we ought to be able to take it for what it is and allow it to become whatever it's going to make us become. So for me, I grew up in a space where family was one, a very intrinsic ideal in the spaces I was in, but two, I grew up in a very conservative space, which was, I guess, very contradicting to what my identity was becoming. So I think for face value, seeing me grow, you would have seen me go to an old boy school, college boy, <laughs> you know, and that would have given you an idea of, of my identity. I think for the most part, you may have been able to just perceive me as just a college boy. And, you know, I'm a rugby brew and I'm engaged in sports and I don't think critically. But then I guess in that same space, you would have seen me exist with my friends and, um, so going to living in a conservative town, going to an all boys traditional all boys school, um, us as the queer kids had to stick together, you know. So like all the queer kids knew each other, they were somehow friends or acquainted, and like you know we just we'd always walk together and stay together, one just so we could protect each other and keep an eye on each other, but two just because then that became the only space where we could exist without being targeted, I guess. Um, so that showed me a new kind of idea around family of that, like, see, family doesn't even have to just be blood no more. It can just be the people that you choose. Um, and then I was, you said I'm a debater, so I was a woke young person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when woke was becoming a thing and the t-shirts were coming out and, like, ideas of consciousness were, I guess more openly discussed and like you know it had become a thing so i remember i, ex I was in the transformation equity and inclusion committee at school um i ran like a lot of inclusive programs or tried to facilitate those things like pride events just like forum discussions for kids to be able to chat he was giving speeches in assembly um all that kind of stuff and that for me i guess was an idea of it was my way of, I guess, fighting the system that I now could see, 
but also I guess the consciousness was showing me was also inherently wrong. Um, so I tried to dismantle a lot of the systems that I guess were very problematic and very oppressive that existed in my high school. Um, and consequently to the way that things work in the world, I failed. <laughs> um, so that one taught me how to be resilient because um, I always say this and this is in no way try me trying to discourage people who are like advocacy champions and all that kind of stuff, you know. But for me, I found that advocacy became in that space like trying to hit a brick wall and expecting it to break, you know. Um, I tried, I tried, and I tried. And you'd get these small fragments of change that would resemble progression, but they really weren't. Um, and then very much being in that kind of cycle also kind of broke my spirit. So I no longer wanted to fight. I no longer thought it was worth it. And now I was this person who had all these different experiences um, and all these different forms of understanding of being and of myself, but still stuck in a, I guess, a purgatory of what now? So I know what I know. I know how I would ideally like to see the world be, but I also, I guess, maybe right now, don't have the strength to be the one making those changes anymore. So I am a complicated thread of intersectional rhetoric. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Mm. I actually, first of all, shout out to you for being a part of such, I think, remarkable advocacy startup culture, you know, because in as much as, of course, later in your analysis, you talk about how it just kept feeling like you were hitting a brick wall. And even though you'd see small fragments of change, it wasn't really doing much for the consciousness that had now been awoken inside of you. So you say that, um, you know, you were part of what people would now describe as the woke um, kind of individuals in society. And also contrasting that against you saying, actually, I come from a very conservative town. I think I can also relate maybe not just in terms of a conservative town, but a conservative country. And so even with advocacy, it can become difficult over time because you are this one person who's screaming and everyone's just like, yeah, 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 we hear you, you know, do your thing, but whatever. What's very interesting for me, though, is when you started speaking about how this journey of consciousness for you began in high school. Now, would you say that this consciousness was awoken by your school environment or was it because you had an expansive library to study from to become more conscious of your surroundings and what you wanted to do differently? I think... Perhaps a little bit of both. Um, so, yes, I come from a small town. It's like, you know, so the school's not small, but like, um, it's a very, like I said, culture and tradition school, but like, it also has a really long history. I think um, Queen's College is about a, almost, if not beyond 170 years old as an institution. So... Um, it's a f obvious. Then that means it's obviously a former Model C school, so it has 
a lot in terms of what it was able to offer me and grant me access to than I think a lot of other spaces would have been able to do for other people. But um, at the same time, I think then navigating or at least attempting to navigate your identity in that same space also does a bit of a number on you. Um, How can I put it, I guess, more reflectively? I think the best way would be to say that one access to the different depositories of knowledge that I had is some that contributed to that one. So I had access to some of the best education that can be offered in a country like South Africa. Um, but two, I come from then a family that's still very much immersed in its value and appreciation for indigenous knowledge systems. So that is something that I also had access to. Um, something that I think has also just been remarkable in the journey is debating. Um, I started doing this thing when I started doing debating when I was what, 15, grade 9? Um, no, 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 I'm lying. 14, grade 8, um, to date. And debating as a sport made me, it made wanting to know more be fun, but to it quite literally changed the way my mind works. Um, I believe I am a critical thinker today, consequently to it. So I think it's all of those experiences, um, which I guess speaks to the intersectionality I was also addressing a bit earlier. It is the experience of having access to multiple forms of knowledge. Um, It is the experience of being able to I guess start furthering my own knowledge prior to even having to go to something like university. Um, shout out to my degree from Vits, but like there's nothing I learned today that I did not learn through the <laughs> <laughs> um, And I guess just a yearning to better understand myself and how I best relate and exist in this world. I love that. Also, you know, speaking about intersectionality, I just remember how your extensions on intersectionality would always just be so chef's kiss, you know, because <laughs> you understand it very well. So I also just want to say, you know, just like as a light side note to people who are listening to this is that honestly, we're not here to give you debating promo. But we can say for sure that it does radically transform the way that you think. And I think maybe mm. we'll see uh, based on the sophistication of response and engagement that you get. It's not purely an intelligent sport, though I think that you do get more intelligent the more you read and interact with the world and, you know, like expand your knowledge. But it's also something that, like you said, teaches one how to think critically. Now, I appreciate, you know, the the analysis that you've given and also just like how you said, the access to one of the best education systems that South Africa has to offer. Now, I'd like us to take a moment and profile an individual who might have come from the same area as you, so the Eastern Cape, perhaps not even the same town, but somebody who comes from um, a conservative community and all they know is the education that they are given so the state developed educational material for them to succeed and then with regards to this 
we're speaking about public institutions that will just chain and chain and chain individuals to become something very specific. Like most mm. of these institutions will direct people into STEM fields because that's how success is defined in these public institutions. So to that kind of individual who exists like that and perhaps doesn't even have another form of impact or knowledge, what do you think a future for a person like that looks like? Do you think it's easy to tap into a consciousness or they end up just living in a conditioning of sorts until they get to a certain point in their lives? Look, um, I think... Firstly, it is definitely more profitable. Um, <laughs> uh, just because, like, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's tough out here. <laughs> but um, I think to be more serious, then, um, it would be to... Look, I think it's a bit tricky for me to be able to answer that because um, I think I am able to speak from the perspective of understanding the struggles of being mainstreamed. But at the same time, no, not not being mainstream, sorry, of being streamlined, yes. Mm. Um, but at the same time, I also then recognize that my ability or capacity to have then been able to kind of skew or blur the lines around that stream that I was supposed to be in is also reflective of different pockets of privilege that I was able to have. So... Mm. Um, I cannot speak on, I think, behalf of somebody who has experienced because that's not one that I have myself, but I can try and draw different lines of symmetry. So I think that um, the complex nature of the town that I come from is that it produces the weirdest batch of individuals so i think for the purposes of this discussion i'll more specifically just stick to the group of friends that i have or that i or the group of people that i know from back home who were somewhat then also streamlined but were like let's see what we can do by trying to move around stuff um so one i think funny enough for a conservative small town that's very different to the life, I guess, exists in a big commercial metro like Joburg, um, is that there's so much talent that comes from those small places. Um, I'm always in so much awe of the people I grew up with or around or the people who are my peers when, like, you know, everybody's doing some kind of project not even necessarily a creative project but just a project because i think we're such a passionate bunch um and we're we know what it's like to have that hunger to yearn for something like to be able to see it but not be able to get it and i think that what a lot of people have tried to do then once they've gotten, they, if they managed to, if they were able to go to university and maybe like leave Queenstown and get to a city, they did everything they could. Mm. Um, not in like hard work, which I think is definitely something that did happen, but in just, if I think I like it, I'm going to do it. So mm. 
to speak to myself specifically, I came to Joburg um, and I was woke, like I said, and I had dreams of changing the world. I wanted to be on the AU or on the UN and I wanted to be able to like help create policy that was going to be able to bring about tangible change to the realities and existences of people who I'd seen struggle, but moreover people like me. Um, and that's why I started doing my degree in politics and international relations, because I was like, that's the path. That's how I actualized that dream. And then second year, I realized that I don't need to be a policymaker to do that. I have the ability to do that through conversations. So that's how I started Reverberate. Um, and I was like, I can do this through educating. And that's when I started coaching, debating. Um, and then I was like, I can do this through expressing, through art. That's when I started like curating playlists and starting to like do A&R and like, you know, work behind the scenes with music. Um, and now I, I dropped out of my honors, which I was doing this year. And I'm a debating coach and I guess interdisciplinary creative. And I am still doing that thing that I wanted to do. I am positively effect, like impacting people's lives. I am telling stories in ways that can be relatable to people, but can also, I hope, enable them to go out and make their own stories. Um, and I'm imparting knowledge onto children who are going to be the next leaders and, you know, policy makers and storytellers. And I feel so fulfilled by that, you know? And I think that despite having initially existed in this, like, streamline of you must now go be a UN ambassador, um, I was still able to play around and do other things. And I think that is, like, once again, like I said, reflective of those different pockets of privilege we come from. Because then, having come from the school that I came from, I got used and was taught to try new things and try whatever I can that's available to me. So my school had a very intense and open sports program and very, like, you know, diverse cultural program where, you know, you could do your debating, your chess, your choir, your acapella. At the same time, you could play hockey, rugby, cross-country, etc. Um, so existing in that school and in, like, in a school that enabled those kinds of things taught me, I guess, now to be able to do that still in my adulthood, which is, I think, a very different story to then to somebody who never even had access to those kinds of opportunities. So I guess the best way to profile somebody who may feel or exist in a specific line is that one it's okay to change it's okay for you to make a 180 it's okay for you to make a 90 it's okay for you to make a 45 <laughs> um, I just don't allow yourself to miss out on your own life um Specific, especially when you are in a position where you can't do more 
and be more. Um, I think it's important to take that opportunity by both hands and like, you know, tussle with it and see what comes out. Hmm. I, I, I feel like you're speaking to me. <laughs> I feel like you woke up and it was just like, yeah, yeah, the sermon preparing for Sandega, but absolutely beautiful. I loved that. And I also am a big fan of the work that you do. Um, like you mentioned, the the podcast, the curation, the debating, um, coaching as well. And I think you mentioned something that was very interesting to me where you said the dream that you had was to effect change um, and to do um, things, but the, the mechanism that you thought at the time would achieve that was becoming... Um, the graduate, you know, that you are, you now are. And then eventually in the middle of your honors degree, you're like, actually, no. And I think that's a mindset change and a really sophisticated mindset development because that could have been perhaps to somebody else been a ceiling to the dream that they had. So it could have been, I want to be a, poli- I want to be um, a politics person I want to effect change through policy making and if I feel like I'm not in the right space and time then I can no longer I can no longer do those things so then it's things like a degree it's things like money it's things like access where people excuse me people feel as though no I do have a dream but I just can't realize it because of reasons a b c d now based on just your individual experience, do you think those ceilings are real things? Should we be cognizant of the ceilings when we're dreaming? Um, I have a dream, for instance, to change the lives of many, you know, radical transformation of the self and of the collective black community from where I come from. So do you think there are actual ceilings that would hinder that becoming a dream for us to take note of, or are these ceilings structural? Um, 100% believe that they are definitely ceilings. They are definitely structural. They are definitely limiting. They are pacifying. And they are demotivating. Um, so I'm so grateful to be in a position right now where I can talk about my life and where I am in my life and how I feel about it so positively. <laughs> um... Because I think had we had this, had we done this maybe like a couple months before now, um, I probably wouldn't have agreed because I would have seen this episode briefly sent me and I would have been like, I don't know how this relates to my life or how to relate it to my life. Um, And I have this new and fresh perspective right now, but I didn't just get there, you know, like I didn't wake up and be like after dropping out or yeah after dropping out of the honors and be like hey it's all good i'm going to be changing lives in different ways um it was actually quite the opposite it was very lonely um it was very scary it was very confusing because like you said those ceilings are structural so I have to get a job somehow, some way to one, provide for myself, but two, then to also get to a place where I can provide for my family um, and I can help to keep things going back home. 
you know, um, and I can be able to be in a position where I can help out my siblings who have been far less privileged than I am, but don't deserve that reality as well. Um, so it was like, hey, if you're going to stop doing this thing that is, I guess, your ticket to a job, what are you going to do as an alternative to make those means happen? Because at the end of the day, they still have to happen. Um, you know, there was the conversation of, I myself was a NASVA student. Um, I don't like characterizing myself to be someone who was in the missing middle because I think I, I live a very different life to that. But I am more or less around that particular age. So I am not someone who comes from a family that was not able to sustain me, my dreams, and the rest of my family. We were fortunate enough to be in a position where we could do those things. Um, but at the same time, I don't come from a family that was able to afford Vitz and Johannesburg and everything else in between while being able to, like, you know, still hold on to the sustainability my grandfather had been able to establish for most of us back home. So I am familiar with the boundary of, like, not knowing who's going to pay for your registration. So never mind talking about what we're going to study, who's going to pay reg. Um, I am familiar with a position of not having funding, and this being a genuine hurdle as to whether you can further your education, right? Um, so even for me, when I had to start my honors, I was like, hey, because I realized halfway through this degree, I didn't want to do it. I didn't produce marks that were going to like get me a nice bursary. Um, and two, I though still passed. <laughs> so... It's like, I've got to do these honors because I can't just get a job off of this undergrad. But at the same time, like, who's going to pay for these honors? Who's going to pay my rent? Um, but what I found in my instance has helped me be able to navigate and get through those kinds of hurdles is reaching out to other things that you can do and that you are capable of and have access to. So when I find myself in a position of not knowing how I was going to pay tuition or where I was going to live, or what my dream was, the things that hold me, held me down in that time were things that I never really thought would have that kind of value. So debating ended up paying my rent because that's the only job I could get. Um, creative work helped me get out of that dark place because I... I am happy when I'm being creative and I love being creative because that is such a big part of who I am and what I want to be doing with the rest of my life. Um, I reached out to my best friend from back home who was kind of in a similar position in his life at the beginning of this year. And I said, Ayo, do you want to come try together in Joburg? So we now live together and that's how you know, I'm able to still be in Johannesburg trying to actualize my own dreams. Um, yeah, I think I'm probably going a bit off topic, but <laughs> I think... Listen, 
the you're, point you're welcome. is <laughs> I think the point is just that um you are not one thing like none of us mm. in our identity are singular or monolithic even though those things of I guess multiplicity may not always all be good or are not always all the same for all of us no one is one thing and I think that when we in our darkest positions we often forget that so I think just remind yourself that there's more to you than the one thing that you have decided to place all your priority in and what that means is that there are other things you can do there are other things that you are and in the same way that you getting a 70% for maths in grade 6, in grade 9, sorry, was enough incentive for you to go study accounting in university, I think that you having sang in the choir is enough reason for you to start making music. <laughs> I love that. That last line for me when you said, you know, it, 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 if you loved maths enough to do an accounting degree, then you singing in the choir is enough for you to start singing and I think it also just goes back to the privilege chat and I relate a lot with what you're saying today just because I understand you know I think a lot of life's journeys are very especially when you've placed your value on the only thing that you got recognition for so initially mm. when I wanted us to profile um, a person who perhaps didn't have as much privilege or access is that you know a lot of the time you'll find or experience that you have so much value in your academic success because that's all that is seen. And perhaps we can't blame uh, the families and the backgrounds we come, we come from because perhaps, like you said, it's the ticket to you getting some sort of financial freedom. But it also hurts, it terribly hurts when you realize that this is not what I want to do. And it's not anything I'm good at also, you know. I have put myself in a position where I've been told that to be successful, I must become a doctor. Or to be successful, I must be a lawyer, you know, the the very streamlined kind of careers. And perhaps, like you're saying, there is some sort of justification to that because you do need to have the money. But what happens if I'm not good at this money-making skill that everybody has told me to go and chase? So, like you said, it's a... It's a systemic ceiling it's there for a reason and so even with things like pursuing your creative work which you are really good at right as Louvre and debating which you're really good at also it took a lot of time for you to get to a point where you're like actually let me focus on that and rightfully so because you you come from a history where you've been praised perhaps also for debating but not in a space where debating is a money-making thing for you it's like it's a really great thing that you have Luvo. we love that you're and you speak and people come alive <laughs> but nobody sees that as a gift that yeah. can generate um, income, i remember interview, you know yeah um mm-hmm. i think i was saying that like um sorry to interrupt just like saying i remember no like last year um, I was like, oh my word, I'm in my final year and mm-hmm. I've been doing debating now since 2015. The year was 2022. So I'm like, this is at least seven, eight years of my life. And yeah. I was like, no one in my family has ever seen me do this. Like, everybody knows <laughs> that like, Louvre or yeah. 
And like, you know, it comes out in weird microaggressions, like when you're trying to have a conversation at home, good <laughs> yo. And it's like, oh my god, I'm just, I'm, I'm just trying to have an opinion. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, um, so you know, I think I definitely understand the chat of like it's incredibly difficult to pursue something that has never been validated by one. I think the most important people in your life, um, mm. and the people who are supposed to help you manifest your dreams you know but also um when there's no recognition i think that perhaps maybe maybe this might cross us over to another conversation um mm. around creativity and how i guess we engage at, with it yeah it's very difficult to tell or have an expectation of somebody to leave like a degree in stem mm. or law or you know all these streamlines we're talking about and then tell them to go pursue a creative um pursuit you know because it's like one people know that there isn't a lot of money in this thing at least not until you've cracked it and you're immersed in corporate and you know you you're making go up like that but it's unlikely that you're going to be making a lot of money from this thing um until you get to that position but two you are not going to get like small support from like friends and family in the form of like well just gonna help you do this thing you know like i think it's really nice and we have supportive friends for our creative virtues and all those things but like it's sometimes like really frustrating because you'll be like the support i need for this thing is like a reshare and then people won't reshare mm. <laughs> you know <laughs> like you know it's like I just, I just need you to subscribe and listen you know so like, yeah. those small things um i would give these things that we do legitimacy and there isn't i guess a culture of already embracing those things like you know we all know the kinds of responses we have to give and the kind of support we have to give for umdofunubangukiha or like a lawyer and whatnot. But nobody knows how to support somebody who wants to go be a creative. Um, you don't know how to motivate them other than, yeah, show me, follow your dreams. Um, and quite frankly, even as like a friend, you don't know how to give more support than just doing that reshare because even that sometimes isn't enough, right? So it's like, how are you going to tell me to go do that? That thing of maybe, I don't know, let's find out, where here, I know if I get my 60, I'm going to get this degree and I'm going to go get a job. Yeah, I think I, it's a, that's a very holistic overview of it because it's one, the environment, two, the individuals you're interacting with, and three, the long legacy that you have to deal with. So, mm. you know, it's it's difficult also for, let me just say, we are a very young generation. So it's difficult also just like on a cognitive level for our elders and perhaps our communities to understand when we say, no, I just want to do um, some creative work. I just want to curate spaces. I want to uh, curate events. I want to do this for people. And they don't understand the association with success because mm. you know it's like there's a lot of like i said it's a, it's a 
the conditioning perhaps also because maybe Utadomkuluako did not go to university, but he saw mm. the people around him who did go to university become what he perceives to be successful. And so that's what he obviously wants for the people around him. But also just because society has changed, um, us going to vets and getting degrees isn't enough anymore. You know, we, we must do honors post we must do a master's, you know, we must continue, continue, continue because the system isn't fertile anymore to just accept each and every graduate that comes out of the system. So I Literally, think, you know, it's you know, so crazy. So it's like, it's, yeah, it's a whole different game now that we're playing and it's difficult to have people catch up because I still have conversations with uh, young parents where you know they'll say things like no um i want my children to have the best education and i understand the importance and the value of a great education but the why is the biggest question so you want to take your children to a majority white school which of course is an indication of the quality of the education they're probably going to get or the amount of access they're going to get to the bigger world but we don't have an actual yearning for change and education that's going to improve the life of us so like you said now integrating creative um, ideals and creative work into our curriculums should be something that's done especially with the southern african part doing so well with ama piano right now but mm. nobody's you know it's not a chat right now we're all still studying to become accountants and lawyers and I think that the best way to perhaps get to that space and perhaps to be in a better position to facilitate those conversations is a more inclusive conversation, right? So I think that the biggest problem that we have is that a lot of these conversations, when we have them, and then when we're also trying to then develop these spaces, these things happen in isolation or in very, like, niche-orientated ways. So this is to say that then... Only people who are exclusively in creative work and people who have had experience for like years in creative work will have all the secrets of that particular trait, right? So there's a lot of gatekeeping that exists around creative work and not just in this country, but I think for the vast majority of the world, you know, um, where there's a direct call for the development of creativity so that like it is more mainstream and commercial but then the same people making that call not wanting to enable that to happen so it becomes incredibly weird look i think my personal vision and hope would be that one day we get to a place where we recognize all the different facets of identity that exist within society right so Yes, it's cool to have the... I call it pseudo-nuance, but whatever. It's cool to have the pseudo-nuance of saying that, yes, we know that there's different people and they are different races and they're of different classes and they're of different genders and they're of different traditional and cultural backgrounds. But I'm like, I think the categories we are using to put people or like to, you know, kind of assimilate people into are perhaps outdated now like even in like a small scale example is like identity right so i have identified as 
by for the longest time. And more recently, I've been interrogating that and saying that, like, I think that the term bisexual is outdated in the sense that at the point at which we understand gender to not exist on the binary, what is the value of that specific kind of classification? So is it to say that if you are bisexual, you're not attracted to non-binary or gender non-conforming people? And if that is the case then, and that you are, does that then not mean you're pan? So I think that like we should start to looking into different ways of classing and categorizing people and the things that we do and how we understand them in the world right now to be more dated to how we perceive the world right now, right? So I think that we're never going to get to a position where my grandfather is going to support my creative pursuit at the point at which he has no idea what it is. And the conversation then ought to be how do we integrate those people into understanding what we're trying to become now? Because if the issue we're identifying is that there's a legacy that exists around what we see and perceive as success, then we have to start with the people who most who have the strongest hold over that particular legacy and change their minds. Because I think at the point at which then we can change those minds, everything's gonna be a lot easier. Particularly when like our biggest barrier as young people is that old people do not support us. I love that. I also just, I think when you were speaking, I got another kind of light bulb moment in my head when I said, when I thought, you know, some of these things, like you said, they happen in such different and small groups. And you and I are having a conversation now and probably, not even probably, the people who listen to this podcast are between the ages of 21 and 27. And so when you think about that also, you think about the kind of impact or the kind of people that will most likely react. So there needs to be a larger kind of like chain reaction that happens on a much bigger scale to be able to remove what we would term the ceiling of some sort. Now, you and I are speaking a lot about um the creative work and the creative side of things and there are a lot of very important and very beautiful i'd say spiritual songs for the lack of a better term just in the in the music space right now even if we just focused in south africa purely where a lot of the rappers um a lot of the singers a lot of the vocalists all sing about either overcoming victory, love, community, and advancement. And, and the one that comes to my mind now is 25K's Pelima Kaveli. And, you know, he's just rapping in Ispidori <laughs> through <laughs> it. And I think it just speaks to the Lex kind of approach. I mean, yes, we've just spoke about changing the minds of people, but at a point where our consciousness tells us why there's a high crime rate, we know why there's a high crime rate, and we know why it's a specific group of people that are associated with crime, and yet the response from perhaps you get is, no, we need to just make people more aware of these things. Do you think there's so, some sort of cognitive dissonance that happens in black communities with regards to what is actually happening and what needs to change. And would you say that this is on purpose? It's how we discussed in the beginning about conditioning and how some people just don't have the privilege to understand. Look, I think that we have this clever black attitude and culture in this country. Um, And you know, where we will sit and theorize 
this is why I hate academia. We will sit and theorize and like, you know, (laughs) have conversations about differences while we uh, still exist differently and all of that, right? And I think that like the value in that is that like, yes, you will know more because you're researching and research yields knowledge. Mm. But you're unlikely to change a lot um, but I also think that you are likely to understand less. So mm-hmm. I was doing my honors in critical diversity studies and mm-hmm. my research interest was on using debating as a form of teaching methodology, methodology sorry, <laughs> um, specifically then to like yield the result of a learning that is not so much based off of theorizing around ideas, but like actually unpacking them and engaging with them critically. Because I think that what debating does and academia doesn't is that debating one forces an empathy um, that I think academia cannot, but two, debating then engages the conversation in a way where you don't just speak of differing actors from you as, I guess, a means to the end of the conversation, but you speak about those actors in a way where you have to find a solution or a rationale that is going to be, one, suitable, sustainable, but also comforting for mm. that particular actor. And because debating requires you to put yourself in the shoes of that actor to be able to win the debate, I think it is able to achieve a better understanding of people and the dynamics of people than um, I think academic circles would be able to. But more specifically, I think that it is very important to make the consideration that we know enough, at least we know enough from the way we've been finding out. And what is that is reflective of is that we either have to find a new means of finding out or we have to find a way to know more than we do. Because part of the issue I have with academia, once again, is because of how circular it is. So we have debunked all the questions of identity, right? And the only thing we're waiting for now is for people to live some more and find out new things about their identities before that particular conversation can progress. So I think that then the approaches we use to try and find solutions or to better cater to specific means is not so much then a just, or at least just a conversation, but it's more of an ability to be able to have better or greater empathy. So like, People hate anthropology because they see it as a form of um, appropriation because you're not necessarily living that life, but you'll go research it by living like you are from it. But I think that the value in something like anthropology is that you're going to have the best form of understanding of something or somebody the more proximal you are to it, so the closer you are. And at a point at which we maintain the distance we have to better understanding, we're never going to get anywhere. So, mm. yeah, I agree. We know why the crime rate is high. We know why, 
like the specific demographic of people are most likely going to commit those crimes and we know why for them the trade-off between breaking the law and committing the crime and just I guess suffering more than you would in an instance where you don't is one that are always going to be making. I think that then the best way to try and go about not so much fixing that but I guess better gauging it before anything else is only when we are able to understand what people want beyond what they're doing and how we can best assist to make that happen. So, like, we know that people are stealing because they're hungry, but, like, you know, we let's do the thing of, like, fixing the hunger part, but, like, let's not stop there. Let's also have a conversation around of, hey, so, like, if you didn't have to be stealing to not starve, what else would you be doing? Like, what can you do, if that makes sense? No, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, You've dropped really impactful points for me which have circulated around the idea and the ideals that you did say in the beginning you love and cherish, which is the idea of community and integration and intersectionality. And I appreciate that very much. Now, just to move into like a lighter sort of um, angle is that I also appreciate having you here today because you do a lot of creative work. And as a music curator and having gone through your life and, you know, everything you've gone through, what would you say music has done for you in terms of consciousness and being more alive, so to say? Music has saved my life. Um, I think that's the point I was actually trying to make before I went off on a tangent before. Um, Music has saved my life. It has gotten me out of the darkest times of my life. It has been there in some of the happiest times of my life. Um, to an extent where like sometimes I'll just be sitting listening to music and I'll be like oh my word this would be so amazing to play at my uncle's wedding or oh my word I can just imagine myself laying with my best friend um, you know just talking about our futures and like this being kind of the theme song to it but even more reflectively like when a certain song comes on you're like get goosebumps because you remember what was happening the last time you heard it or at a very memorable point that you heard it. So I think that like music is definitely ingrained into our consciousness. Um, and like, I'm gonna get a bit sci-fi here, but like I think that music is the closest thing to being able to track what a collective consciousness looks like is, or at least I think music is a gateway to that. Um, in the sense that like, we could be playing a song, right? And when that song plays, we could either A, have the same emotive reaction to it, two, we could reflectively experience that song where like you and I had completely differing experiences of when it was happening, but we'd still be in that emotion. Um, And like that song would still be able to connect us because of that. Or even C, it could be an instance where a certain song, like I said, may have saved my life and gotten me out of like a really dark place but um it has done for something similar for somebody who lives in like Europe or it did the exact same thing for the person who perhaps even wrote that song so I think that one music is the closest thing we have to that understanding of self and I guess a collective self but beyond that I think that music is so important 
to storytelling um, and to the retention of history. Like, for example, if you want to track South African history, you can quite literally do that through an observation of the music between the historical and the contemporary, right? So this looks like looking at one struggle songs, so I'm a Kujo, to then looking at Kwaito, to looking at the hip hop era we get when South Africa starts entering like, you know, more mainstream hip hop with your Casper and your vest and your AKAs, to a new form of hip hop when the wrecking crew with Aries and Flame and them happen, to another new form of hip hop where we have Blackie and the likes of Baby Diaz, um right up into right up to what I'm a piano is doing in this country and like in the world at large. Um it is important and is part of our identities and it is part of our histories and it is and it has been telling our stories for years. Um like come on dude, freshly ground. Like <laughs> um yeah okay I'm probably gonna geek out now. Okay, let, 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 let me stop <laughs> A part Benny still gives good loving. Yeah I know. I think I love I love it. I think hearing you speak about music, I am just in the clouds. I'm like, yeah I know. This is the right person to have asked the question to because not only did you speak about collective consciousness, which I think is a remarkable line, and I will actually be using it everywhere. <laughs> collective <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> I think also Umab Steve Biko did speak about collective consciousness in his teachings. But yes. you know, I just like this really um sort of new layer for me where I'm like, Yes, absolutely, because even if you curated a playlist and an event, you know, and we all had, uh, what, a four-by-four wall where we were all sitting inside, packed in, and you played the playlist mm. for us, some of us would cry when some songs <laughs> would come on. Some of us would want to get out of the room when some of the songs Some of played, us would but, be smiling. You know, and um, maybe when some are, pr- are playing, we're praying all together. We all feel like we are in a trance where we're praying because perhaps yes. it's associated with like this one particular event in history where we're just like, wow, you know. And I, I assume that's what it's like for um, when when you're singing Ikuicho. You know, particularly because you also come from the Eastern Cape where it's a spiritual experience also more than anything where you're connecting with the self and those Mm. around you in community. I think something like gospel has the same kind of value. So Methodist in my time in the church Um, and especially now that like I'm an adult, I've been finding myself like going back to songs from the church. Um, Mm. Um, mm. to name a few those were like very those are very spiritual songs and like songs from the Methodist church that I grew up hearing not even like singing my heart out to like I remember going to church on some Oh my God! I don't know what these songs are saying. I don't know what the <laughs> preacher is saying because it's all in Kosa. And I go yeah. to a Model C school, but um, <laughs> oddly enough, in the last couple of months, mm. I heard these songs again, and I just had this feeling of comfort. Mm. 
Um, mm. Like, and I, I was like, I'm not religious. So I was like, I know it's not God. But I was like, this is a feeling that I felt before when I mm. was religious and I used to go to praise and worship. This is a feeling that I imagine my grandmother like feels when she prays. And that's why I think that like that collective consciousness and that that energy that's in the music is something that can be carried through. Um, and it doesn't. And I also think that like it doesn't just exist in music. It exists in in prayer, right? Like you were saying, prayer is like a trance. I think that the ability to feel what people what you feel when you pray, right? And even if you're praying in like a large group, for us, or for all of us to be in that trance and to be feeling at the same time, I think there's like a beauty to that connectivity that is happening there. Um, so, wow, man, like, I just think that it's, I, I, like, I think it's beautiful. I think um, it tells a story. I think it, it is a feeling that if tracked enough well through history is a feeling that, like, you know, has been felt before but has continued for so long. So even now that I'm not religious, I don't go to church but like when that song comes on or those songs come on, I will be there. And even if like a song I don't even know from church comes on, like I'll be humming in my bass and like, you know, I'll be moving, you know. And I was like, I'm like, that's not even like a genre of music that I'd say that I actively listen to. But like no one can tell me, no black person can tell me that they'll be in church <laughs> and they'll hear and you don't move. Like, you know, it's, and that has to come from somewhere because to the extent that like you don't even know that song, right? You will still have that movement. It has to come from somewhere. Mm. Yeah, no, I. I'm already, I think also just as we're speaking, our ancestors are awake. <laughs> just like, hey, yes, I you know, call it. Like, oh, I'm call it in. <laughs> so, you know, I am just also thinking now that we've had such a beautiful conversation. Yes, there are limitations and yes, we, we know that there are problems, but also just like the power of when we think about a house structure that our collective consciousness is how we break the ceiling, you know, is that when you spoke about community and you said it's important for us to be able to also educate the people who have the largest sort of influence over the legacy that they've come into. So like the people that like have walked in with us, it's important for us to be able to change their minds too and to change the minds of those around us. Because I think when that happens is that you get this, like you said, collective consciousness and we are all awake at the same time, the same way that I feel like both of us are awake in this call right now, this episode recording, Gosiam, it feels like I'm talking to you and we're just catching up over tea, which I guess is what we're doing. But you know, it feels as though there is a solution and there's a way out is that, yes, we have this idea and this concept of class consciousness um, as defined by, you know, Marxist theory, etc., etc. But we also understand and know that there is impactful, there's an impactful way to kind of frame your thinking and to effect change in the society that isn't really related to how well you do your degrees. I mean, we're not saying here don't do your degrees, children. You should do your degrees because, I mean, 
it's a character building experience. But you know, at the end of the day, that you are more than that, and you have more to offer than that. And I think like that's a very beautiful kind of like view and outcome. So I don't know, Ruvo, do you have like a song you want to share, or a lyric, or a line that you feel like really encapsulates? Um, I don't know the idea of consciousness or dreaming, actually, because. Um, I was just thinking about when you were mentioning the rise and the change of hip hop, how I was thinking about oh. when Aries said, you know, um, that he's living in paradise. Um, that exact line, I forget, but he says, you know, the, the the life I'm living now is a life I imagined back in 2011, you know, watching BET and he's like, what a dream at the end. And I said, you know, like that encapsulates for me mm-hmm. the idea of dreaming is that he kind of premeditated where he was going to be. And so it's important for us to dream at the end of the day, and even though we are aware of the A big part of dreaming is the intentionality. Mm. Um, it's, the, it's the intentionality. Because like I think if we all account to all the dreams that have come true, it's never the ones who were like, oh, maybe that'd be nice, or oh, I'd like that. It's the ones you said, I'm going to mm. have that. It's mm. the ones you said, I'm going to do that. So I think... It's so important to be intentional with your dreaming. Um, oh, a song. Um, so many things flashed through my mind, but I think I'll just like keep to the songs I spoke about last because those are the ones that I, I guess, the freshest. But Unenzelunayeto goes, Mandi, Mandi ngasali, Dingena yungeti. Denze, denze lune tono guha ala ala. Um, may have botched a few lyrics there, but I think you get the point. Um, at least for me, it's it's tough. It was never gonna be easy. Um, and even though it's tough right now. The reason it's so important to hold on to hope is because there's something in the end for you. Mm. And Unleto in this context is the light. There's a light out there waiting for you and that light is not going to dimmer or switch off unless you do so. Um, mm. So don't give up, don't stop. Stay within that struggle, but know that it's all temporary. One of the kids I coach once said to me that, um, you taught me that logic is consistent and it ought to always track. And she then says to me that, this was when I was going through a tough time and I had like a big loss in the family. Um, She said that, logically speaking, to the extent at which great times do not last long or they ought to be somewhat proportional to the kind to the number of bad times we experience this too shall pass Mm. so if the best times in your life could not have lasted forever the toughest times will definitely not last forever and Mm. um i've hung on to that to this day and um i think that that particular song or the message in that song is one that encompasses something along those lines that just keep holding on, keep dreaming, keep trying, keep breathing. 
And even if you can only do one of those at a time or one of those in a day. So yeah, so yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. Mm. Oh, the Talaba Temple, the hope and the light of the Aba Temple clan. Thank you so much for gracing this episode and this podcast actually we are honored it has been beautiful it has been lovely and i think everyone who's listening to this will keep dreaming so yeah because you know the road is long and you're not defined by one thing your identity is not rooted in an idea but you're a multiple of things and just figuring that out will help so thank you so much Luvo. uh it was a pleasure and it was great having you here Thank you once more for having me on your Tandega. Um, like you said, um, I, I was a bit nervous at the beginning, but I think from when we started speaking, everything just like moved so organically, and it really just became a conversation around us catching up and sharing ideas <laughs> like we always do. Um, so it was so beautiful to be on this platform. Um, it's so beautiful to be able to be on air. I have not been podcasting for a while, Consequently, to all the things you've discussed, but um, <laughs> I'm getting back on my creative feet. Um, please do you check out Reverberate the podcast. We're available on all streaming platforms. Um, we are also in our transition onto YouTube. So, like, um, please do also keep an eye out for a promo rollout that has already begun. And I can't wait to keep sharing stories um, and ideas and feelings with. Um, all of the people who are listening here and um, if you got any vibrators <laughs> listening up in here, as you should um, please mm-hmm. do make sure to share and subscribe to his channel as well um, it's been an amazing time thank you so much Tanega thank you I will share all those links that Luvu was speaking about in the marketing rollout and the episode description so you guys should be able to catch up to him and what he gets up to so yeah thank you so much Luvo. alright guys and the abulel papa in papa in if you're hearing this you have gotten to the end of our conversation so while we clean up our platters and cleanse our palates in preparation for the next session of tea's finely brewed tea please follow like and share this podcast with your friends family and whoever you like and if you are looking for me because you want to talk to me tag me mention me you can find me on instagram and twitter and my handles are in the episode description thank you for sharing a fine meal with tea